This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Truck bombs in Somalia's capital killed and injured hundreds earlier this month. This was a truck that was loaded with explosives, including cooking gas. And that's why you saw such a configuration, such a uh, incendiary effect. Well, Mohammed Noor of Denver had friends and family in Mogadishu at the time of the attack. Noor fled Somalia 30 years ago to escape violence and instability. Today, he's the president of the Somali American Culture Center of Colorado. Our conversation contains some graphic descriptions. And uh, Mohammed, welcome to the program. Thank you. This attack flattened homes and businesses. Uh, let me ask first how your friends and family are in Mogadishu. I lost some friends, but uh, my close relatives, they okay. Was there a time when you were worried and didn't know if your family was okay? Uh, yes. Uh, everybody worries when something happens in Mogadishu. And you say that you lost some friends. Uh, tell yeah. me about that. I lost some friends. We grew up in the same boarding school, some family, uh, my mother's side and my, my wife's side. Hmm. So it's a big disaster happened there. Is it true that you first learned about the attack from your friends posting on social media? Actually, yes, at the Facebook. And I, after that, I call. What he, kinds of things were they posting? Was it pictures? Because the, Horrible the, pictures. But when I talked to any one of my friends, he said the people are still on the rubble. You know, the building collapsed. Uh, some people, you know, they say they found their heads, you know, flown somewhere else. It was uh, terrible. My goodness. Uh, the bombing was Somalia's deadliest terror attack. More than 300 people died, hundreds more injured. And the Somali government has said the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab was behind the bombing. That group opposed the UN-backed government in Somalia and has ties to Al-Qaeda. In areas under Al-Shabaab's control, there has been stoning of women, cutting off of thieves' hands. And since the bombings, Protesters have taken to the streets of Mogadishu to decry the terrorist group, wearing red headbands to symbolize the bloodshed. Al Jazeera ran an interesting piece titled Double Standards. Why aren't we all with Somalia? And it quotes people who think the attack hasn't gotten nearly the attention others have in Las Vegas, Manchester. Uh, The BBC had a similar story. Why Pray for Mogadishu isn't trending. Do you think that it's getting enough attention? The no, it doesn't get any enough attention. But that's what they're looking for, the Shabab themselves. It's what they want to politicize, you know, showing they can do whatever they want hmm. in Somalia. Locally, you and uh, others in the Somali community are gathering aid. What's most needed right now? What we needed is a medicine, moral support. And you're gathering funds as well. Yeah, we're gathering a fund, hopefully. You left Mogadishu in 1990. There was a civil war going on. And you left just before President Siad Bar's military regime was overthrown. Can you tell us about the point you knew you had to leave the country? For security reason. You felt your life was in danger? Yes, that's my life in danger. That's the reason I left Somalia. Were people you knew being killed? Definitely. Uh, did you come to the United States immediately? Was that your intention? No. I never even think about it. I was in Africa, Southern Africa. Southern Africa. Southern Africa. And I understand that you had to leave your family behind at first. Definitely. I left my wife, 
my youngest daughter was inside her, uh, what do you call, pregnant, my wife, and I left her behind. This is in part because men were quite vulnerable. Heads of households were quite vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, eventually, you did get asylum in the United States. Yes, I got asylum. Finally, I approved in 1997. And was that the moment at which your family then could follow you? Yes. Uh, then my family joined me in 1998. And you were a part from them for a long time. Yes, about seven years. But I went back in 1997 when I get my approval to see my wife in Nairobi, Kenya. That was my first time to see my youngest child also. Who had been born yeah. while you were out of the country. Out of the country, yeah. That must have been hard, huh? That's very hard yeah, for every, every person. What did you do to support yourself once you got to the United States? Today, you are a limousine uh, driver and an owner of two limousines. I got out of what you call uh, necessity work permit. They used to call necessity. And I started working that time. A work permit? Yeah, a work permit. I used to do surveying. And the weekend, I used to do security. Security at one point at NPR in Washington, is that right? Yes, yeah, so I no. used to work at nighttime. How is life in Colorado for you today and your family? Well, the, today is okay, but the, today is challenging. Life is going up. Uh, what do you call business going down, our business, you know, for so many reasons, you know. So, but it's okay. Our kids, my kid is educated. So I'm happy. I'm Coloradian now. What is your sense of what life is like in Somalia now from the contact that you have with friends and family? And, and how do their lives differ from yours? Actually, Somalia, you know, right now the business is booming, but the lack of security. Yeah. You know, uh, Somalia is uh, driving, new buildings, everything is changing. A lot of people have been educated. There's a hope, you know. But it's hard to be successful if you're worried about your safety, your life, I guess. Definitely, yes. The safety also here in America, you know, the, we have a most secure, but everything can happen also. What do you miss most about Somalia? Oh, Somalia, I miss the, what you call uh, my motherland. I lost my, you know, I missed my motherland, but also my adopted country. I'm happy. You're happy. You know, it's a good country. Do you hope to go back to Somalia? Uh, definitely. I'm 60. I would like to go back. You're 60, you're saying? Yes, I'm 60. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Mohamed Noor is president of the Somali American Culture Center of Colorado. He's arranging aid for victims of the bombing in Somalia's capital. Over the weekend, a roadside explosion near Mogadishu killed at least 11 people, according to Al Jazeera. The state's pension system, PARA, is what more than half a million current and former government employees rely on for their retirement. But it's at risk of running out of money in future decades. The legislature will consider changes next year. Denver Post reporter Brian Eason spoke with CPR's Mike Lamp about how PARA got into trouble and what's next. What PARA had been doing for years was they were assuming eight and a half percent returns and they just weren't getting that and you do that for too long and it's just not sustainable if you don't meet those expectations the other thing that's really hit their finances hard is they're starting to expect people to live longer and even a couple years of life expectancy adds up to quite a bit when you are providing retirement benefits to half a million people i imagine that colorado's public employee retirement system 
is not something that a lot of people who are not public employees think about very often. But as you point out in your reporting, it's something that affects everybody in Colorado. Oh, absolutely. I mean, basically every public employee in the state, with a few exceptions, is on the public pension. And so what that means is if you're a local government, it's a huge chunk of your personnel costs. Government entities are required to contribute a little over 20% typically to the pension of somebody's salary. So anytime there's an increase in contributions, that's going to hurt government agencies who are trying to also provide services. So that's either going to mean for taxpayers, you're going to get fewer public services because they're going to have to cut something, or they might come back to you and say, we need to raise your taxes to pay for this. So they made these revisions in 2010. Things didn't work out as expected. And what is the plan now to refix Parrot? A lot of it is fairly similar to what happened back in 2010. They're asking retirees to give up some of their annual cost of living raises. Employees are going to have to start contributing more if the state legislature approves this. And government agencies are as well. So the changes they want to make now are pretty similar to what they were doing seven years ago. But one difference is that in this new version, if things don't work out the way that they expect, some changes will happen automatically and they don't have to go back to the state legislature. Yeah, that's absolutely right. What that does is it takes politics out of the equation a little bit. And, you know, it also responds to the problem more quickly. What they're basically asking for is the right to automatically increase employee contributions, taxpayer contributions, and cut retiree benefits even more in small increments until they meet their goals. Is there anything controversial about this? Are there members of the legislature or in the public who think that public employees should be on their own or that their benefits are too generous or something like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you see a wide range of opinions on this, and a lot of them are pretty passionate. I mean, on the one hand, there's a lot of folks who don't have a pension, and they aren't doing so well in retirement themselves, and they don't see why they should have to contribute more to somebody else's retirement. On the flip side, you have a wide swath of public employees that were promised this retirement benefit. And so they didn't maybe didn't save the way that someone in the private sector would. So they're relying on this. And so for them, it's a hard pill to swallow to know that you're going to be getting less benefits than you were promised. At the legislature, you know, I think you're going to see people on both sides of the aisle trying to tweak this proposal. On the right, there are a lot of conservatives that think that government contributes enough to this. They may be looking for either retirees or employees to pick up more of the bill. On the left, I think that you're going to have a lot of pressure from public employee unions who are saying, look, this wasn't what we signed up for. You guys can't ask this much more of us. I mean, we already gave a lot in 2010. It's worth pointing out that recipients of para-benefits don't get Social Security. They don't, no. And they also don't pay payroll taxes into that. And what if the legislature does not approve these changes to para? Then the status quo remains. I mean, you know, para is going to be at pretty high risk of becoming insolvent if there's another recession. And is that just a few years away, or is it at least some decades before PARA would be unable to meet its obligations? It would be quite a few years off. I mean, they have, I think, $44 billion in the bank right now, but they have a few bad stock market years. Their risk of running out of money increases, and the longer you wait, it's a lot harder to fix it. That is Brian Eason of the Denver Post speaking with CPR's Mike Lamp. Para's board is holding public meetings around the state focused on what is needed from the legislature. The next meeting is tonight in Boulder. 
When we come back, Denver choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson dedicates her new show to her father. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Growing up, Denver choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson says her home was filled with joy. She credits her late father for filling it as well with music, dance, and conversation about how to change the country so that everyone would feel welcome. J.P. Parker was an actor, musician, technical director, and community activist, and his legacy is the backdrop for Cleo Parker Robinson's upcoming show, My Father's House. And Cleo, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here, Ryan. Thank you. This show combines new works of dance and some old. One of the new pieces is called Copacetic, after one of your father's favorite sayings, everything is copacetic. Absolutely. In, every, in other words, everything's fine. That's right. <laughs> uh, but your, your, your father's life wasn't easy. He was black, married to a white woman. Mm-hmm. He was a talented performer, but uh, did much of his work behind the curtain. So what kinds of situations would lead him to say in that environment, everything is copacetic? Well, you know, he really came from the South, and that was really wild because he left the South angry uh, at the age of about 15, left on his own and decided to leave his whole family. Angry and, about what? Well, I think the conditions in the South, he was, uh, he thought he'd grow up picking cotton. And he decided that's not what he wanted to do. And he also saw the way women were abused. He saw his own mother, you know, and it really, um, his, his um, half-brother's father, being in the house, didn't treat the other children well and, and didn't treat his mother right. And I think he was, um, even at 15, decided he would be a man and either hurt the man or be gone. And so that, that was his copacetic moment. It was like, I'm going to make this right by not being here. And I suppose by comparison, everything was copacetic in, in some yeah, regards, yeah, that he, he wasn't picking cotton and yeah, that he yeah. wasn't in an abusive home. Yeah, he, he made some choices and he came to Denver and then went on to Vancouver, but he, he, he loved sports, loved sports, and he was a musician. He loved music. So through the music, he found ways of kind of being, you know, kind of copacetic, finding a, a cool way to move through things, you know what I mean? So music was his his joy. You spent much of your childhood in the Denver area, and your family did face quite a bit of discrimination. What do you remember about having mixed-race parents in, I think, like the 1950s? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Well, I think one of the fun things that Daddy talks about is we always had a police um, escort, and we always wondered, we'd look, look back, and we, we were in the station wagon, we'd look back and we go, Daddy, there's Mr. Charlie. And he says, right on time. He says, we, we have, um, we're as important as the President of the United States. We have a police escort everywhere we go. So they followed us because, you know, there was my father with a white woman and Colfax was a dividing line. You couldn't cross it. This was profiling, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. And he, but he would try to make light of it in front of the children. He would. Yeah, he wouldn't let us be angry about it. He'd make fun of it. And, um, we feel really special. We'd like, oh my, nobody else has a police escort. <laughs> that would you be did, like, you Whoa. didn't have a sense at that point that it was actually racist. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. Um, he would actually later uh, sit us around the round table, and we'd all uh, at dinner time, and we'd all talk about issues. And he'd say, you know, that that's what we've got to change. He said, we're going to change it in this country, hmm. and that's what we were about. He was about joy and justice. 
Let's talk about your father's legacy. So you say that he was a musician. He was a skilled technical director, really the keystone of a theatrical production. And he taught others, including women, when women didn't do that sort of work, to be technical directors. Oh, he was he was a feminist for sure. Um, and he, you know, he became the the technical director and and director at the Houston Fine Arts Center at Carpenter Women's College. So he was the first one when that building was built to run it, and he was the only one. So when the women came in to study theater, he said, "I want you to be skilled and get jobs that women have never given been given before." And so he trained them to be technicians, and then they traveled with me around the world. I was going to say, you hired many of the women he trained to work in your performances. It was really wonderful to change. I remember being at Morehouse um, doing Dr. King's first celebration. Morehouse College. uh, Morehouse College, an all-black men's college, Mm -hmm. historically Dr. King's college. And there we were with a white woman running my lights. And they said, oh, no, no, she can't touch the light board. Oh, no, 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 no. And Daddy said, no, 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 we're gonna, it's going to be copacetic. Don't worry about it. Copacetic. <laughs> It'll be all right. And it was fantastic. But it, we broke uh, lots of barriers. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And the Denver dancer and choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson is my guest. Her ensemble performs My Father's House this weekend at the Newman Center at the University of Denver, and it is based on the story of her father. And uh, boy, the the Newman Center is also a powerful place to be doing this because for quite a long time, he was facilities director there, right? Oh, he was the one who was then um, asked to leave uh, the Houston Fine Arts Center and come over with the Lamont School of Music and actually run the new building. And so I would stand there, and Daddy would have a hard hat, and we'd look at this wonderful hole of in the ground, and he said, isn't that going to be copacetic? And I'm looking at <laughs> all the dirt going, I don't see what you're seeing yet, but when it was built, it was absolutely that. And, and it he, became the Newman Center. It was And that's where this will be performed. And again, your father's name, J.P. Parker. Do you think that his race held him back from being uh, more of an onstage artist? Well, I think certainly in the beginning. But I think Daddy made some choices. Um, You know, he knew that actors didn't get paid much. He knew uh, musicians didn't get paid much. So I think uh, he he was self-taught. He he learned how to build sets, build houses, um, paint, um, do anything, anything that he he was self-taught. He read all the time. And so I think he wanted to make a better place for his family. I mean, when there were four of us. and uh, There were was, mouths to feed. There were lots of mouths to feed. And, and uh, being an actor, he was able to break the color line because he didn't play just the butler or just the, the uh, field hand, but he was able to write. And, and he wrote the first Black Cowboy for television. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was phenomenal. So it really was marvelous that he was able to do lots of things within the theater and teach others to do, to find their niche. Tell me about this Black Cowboy he wrote. Oh, yeah, he wrote about the Black Cowboys. And um, it went on Channel 6 for many, many years, many seasons there. I see. And it was the first uh, that people knew. I mean, he was a, a cowboy. Once he came to the West, he began to really work with horses and other black cowboys. I see. So he wrote what was a true account of early black cowboys yes, in the West. Got absolutely. It. Well, in, in this show, the piece Copacetic yes. will feature images in the background, I, I guess, including of your father. What do you want the audience to take away? 
I think that um, just carrying his legacy, that they're sitting in his house, and he had many houses, the Colorado Women's College, that where now is the DSA, Denver uh, School, the School for the Arts. Um, his spirit is still there. And the Newman, his spirit is still there. In my theater, his spirit is still there. But everywhere he went, he knew that there would be a room for everyone. And I think that's what I want everyone to know is that when we go into these houses, that, that we're making sure that there's a room for everyone. I imagine he's in your heart as well. Oh, he's absolutely in my heart. She's a Denver dancer and choreographer, and her ensemble performs My Father's House this weekend at the Newman Center at the University of Denver. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Professional drivers get white-knuckled, too, when mountain roads are covered in snow and ice. That's an admission Finn Murphy of Boulder makes in his debut book called The Long Haul, A Trucker's Tale of Life on the Road. It opens with a harrowing drive on Loveland Pass. Murphy joins my colleague Nathan Heffel from the road. Finn, welcome back to Colorado Matters. How are you? Great to be here, Nathan. Hi. Uh, so where are you joining us from today? I'm in Bradenton, Florida. Okay, and you have your truck with you, I'm assuming? I do. I'm on a, I'm on a two-month truck tour. All right. Well, I'd like you to read a bit from the opening of your book. You decide to skip the congestion at Eisenhower Tunnel and are cruising up Loveland Pass in your truck, and things seem okay until you reach the top. Why don't you take it from there? At the top of the pass, High up in my Freightliner Columbia tractor, pulling a spanking new, fully loaded custom moving van, I reckon I can say I'm at an even 12,000 feet. When I look down, the world disappears into a miasma of fog and wind and snow, even though it's July. The road signs are clear enough, though. The first one says, runaway truck ramp, one and a half miles. Next one. Speed limit, 35 miles an hour for vehicles over 26,000 pounds. Next one, are your brakes cool and adjusted? Next one, all commercial vehicles are required to carry chains. I run through this checklist in my mind. Let's see, one and a half miles to the runaway ramp is too far to do me any good if the worst happens. 35 miles an hour downhill sounds really fast. My brakes are cool, but adjusted? I hope so, but no mechanic signs off on brake adjustments in these litigious days. Chains? I have chains in my equipment compartment. They won't save my life sitting where they are. Besides, I figure the bad weather will last for only the first thousand feet. The practical aspects of putting on chains in a snowstorm with no pullover spot in pitch dark at 12,000 feet In a gale, wearing only a T-shirt, is a prospect Dante never considered in enumerating his circles of hell. The other option is to keep rolling. Maybe I'll be crushed by my truck at the bottom of a scree field. Maybe I won't. I roll. And you do make it down the mountain pass. You've checked off all your your lists, but you go really slowly down the pass, much to the chagrin of the other truck drivers. It's a pretty hair-raising experience. What is it like, that feeling of dread during a difficult drive like the one you just described? Yes, 
Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's horrible. And the older I get and the more I do this, um, the more, the more um, you know, trepidation I feel. Huh? Not, not, not less because you're becoming more professional. You actually have more dread. I have more dread because now I, now I have a much clearer idea of, what, of, of all of the bad things that can happen. <laughs> I see. That's something that I would, you know, if, if, if everybody probably in Colorado has been behind one of those fuel trucks going down Loveland Pass or down the other side of the Eisenhower Tunnel, and it probably never occurs to people that the driver's probably scared. So <laughs> think about that next time. Well, so what made you want to become a truck driver? Uh, you actually attended a liberal arts college. You're on your way to a degree. Uh, can you describe the conversation you had to kind of say, you know what, I want to stop that and I want to go into trucking? Yeah, so I finished. I finished three years of college um, over, over over on the East Coast, and I was working for a local moving company in the summers between semesters. And my third summer there, I took a short road trip from Connecticut to Virginia Beach, Virginia, with a long haul driver, and we went over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel and then under the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. And at that point, I was seduced. I would be, I you know, I came from a very regimented household. I came from a very regimented academic thing and uh once i once i was out there on the truck that was it it was freedom for you it was freedom for me although it was not a popular decision in my household <laughs> your parents didn't take it too well then uh my my name was erased from the family bible for a certain <laughs> period of time <laughs> but it, it got reinstated after a while so you become this truck driver and and you write about the hierarchy of truck drivers i didn't know this existed how do you fit in that hierarchy and and why are you where you are on this list of drivers yeah so it's really funny so depending on what you haul depending on what kind of truck you drive depending on how you're paid there's and then there's names for everybody so there's all this nomenclature so i work for a van line i move families and so we're called bed buggers movers are bed buggers and then if you haul a flatbed you're called a skateboarder if you haul natural gas, you're called a suicide jockey. If you haul live animals, you're called a chicken choker. Okay. And so we all have our little our little place in the hierarchy. And you know, it's sort of fungible. But here's what's not fungible: the chicken choker guys they're 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 at the bottom. In fact, if you go to a truck stop late at night and all the spaces are full and there's only one space left, it's going to be next to one of those animal haulers because the smell is overpowering. So you're a a bed bugger, okay? But you're you're a mover of of people's goods cross country. That's correct. Okay, so it's it's kind of a, a derogatory thing to be called a bed bugger. How, how do you feel about that? I I think it's a badge of honor, and they call our and the, our trucks are called roach coaches. <laughs> uh, we we're looked down upon a little bit in the trucker fraternity because we load and load unload our own trucks. You know, we have to empty houses of furniture. We have to pack cartons and all that kind of thing. So it's it's very hard, physical, demanding work. Uh, we we get paid a lot more than most other truckers, so that's they don't like that. And uh, we don't really care what kind of truck we drive. We're not into the fancy chrome and all the lights. So yeah, we're 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 not going to be uh, welcomed at the coffee counter, the truckers only coffee counter at the truck stop. So you don't get coffee before, uh, let's say, someone who's moving cars or something like that. Yeah, so the other thing about movers is we don't have a particular route, so we can't be relied on for that pie slice and coffee every Tuesday at 10.30. We're gypsies. We just go where the moves go. So we're always a stranger wherever wherever we end up. 
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking to Finn Murphy, a truck driver based in Boulder. His book is called The Long Haul. Now, you've loaded and unloaded shipments of people's personal belongings as a long-haul mover. You've made a career out of it. I'm sure you've seen some things. Uh, You write, quote, movers are in possession of all your stuff. If stuff is important to you and it is disproportionately important to most of the people we move, then the movers are the most important people in your life for those couple of days. If we don't get a modicum of respect, well, we will preserve our dignity one way or another. Are there things... That, that you come in contact with that uh, maybe people need to understand as, uh, as they deal with movers? Well, I think, um, I think what, yeah, so I think that's, that statement right there kind of covers it. What, what happens with movers is that we learn more about people in 30 minutes than maybe their best friends do after 30 years. And, you know, I don't bring any judgment to that, or movers don't bring any judgment to that. And if you've got, you know, two tractor trailers full of household goods, you know, 80,000 pounds of stuff or 40 tons of personal possessions, that, you know, if that's okay with you, that's fine. But I, I think it's important that you treat the movers and the crews, you know, nicely and respectfully. And most of the time that happens, but sometimes it doesn't. And it just doesn't make any sense if we're carrying all your things, then... Uh, I think respect would be easy and logical. So it's it's not a threat, per se? No, not at all. Not at all. But, you know, we do have situations where, um, you know, most of my helpers, so, so I have to hire crews, and I have crews all around the country, and that's what we take, uh, you know, that's how we load and unload the trucks. And, you know, most of these people are at the at the bottom end of the American dream, which is an interesting seat that I have as the driver. So I work with, you know, people at the bottom end, and then I work for the people at the top end. So I have a sort of interesting perspective. Which, the funny thing about movers is that movers are kind of, we're all kind of Buddhists in a way, that we don't get attached to things because we know the ultimate fate of what, of what happens to stuff. So even like the, the poorest mover in the world, the poorest local mover guy, he's not going to become a collector. None of us are collectors, but we all work for collectors. Can you tell us about one of these collectors? It is a story of a family in Evergreen and their baby grand piano. Everything that could go wrong does go wrong. Can you quickly just tell us that story and how you fit into that? Oh, gosh, yes. So so actually we took over from a move where the, the driver had left and they left this, the, this family's, all their possessions in the, on the driveway up in Evergreen around one of those hairpin curves up there. And, uh, and they had a grand piano and it wouldn't go in the house or it wouldn't go up the stairs of the house because of a turn, so we had to put it up an outside staircase. And there was only two joist hangers holding it up. And when we got to the top of the grand piano, the stairway gave away. The piano fell 14 feet onto the ground, and we completely destroyed it. And we just all felt horrible about it. And it began to rain on top of it. <laughs> and then it rained on top of it. And then and the customer's there with his wife and his toddler, and they look over at us, and we look over at him, and... We just, all of us just started crying. We just, we just couldn't handle anymore. How does it feel to be there for those important moments? Maybe a divorce or a promotion or maybe a new baby. You're right there in these very intimate moments of these people's lives. Well, that's, what, that's what's wonderful about being a mover, is that you have this instant intimacy, which, you, which people can acknowledge, and then if they do, then you have a really nice connection for a short period of time. And then you have the other kinds who, who, who deny it and don't acknowledge it and, you know, don't let you use bathrooms and so forth. 
uh, I just think it's a great way to gather wisdom about how you want to run your life and what kind of possessions you want to have and what you want to hold to be important. And to, and to me, it's not the stuff that's, that I'm moving that's important. It's your connections with your family, your connections with your friends, with your community. And a lot of people that I move, they, they get that backwards. Finn, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Nathan. You take care. You too. Finn Murphy is a truck driver from Boulder. His debut book is The Long Haul, A Trucker's Tales of Life on the Road. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Murphy spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Kids can count on a steady stream of new books from the prolific children's author Avi, who lives in Steamboat Springs. Avi is winner of the Newbery Medal, and he'll be in Denver tomorrow to launch his latest about a boy plucked from the gutter to become the King of England. Avi's previous novel, The Unexpected Life of Oliver Cromwell Pitts, was also set in England in 1724. 12-year-old Oliver wakes up to discover his home has flooded and his father is gone. Let's listen back to my conversation with Avi and with a young reader, Sive Kelleher, who attends Denver School of the Arts. And Avi, Sive, welcome to the program. Thank, Thank you. you. In the search for his missing father, Oliver has to head to the faraway city, London, alone. And uh, what stands out about his journey to you, Sive? Well, it was super interesting how it was written kind of like a memoir and a diary at the same time. And it was cool to hear about the experiences of a child my age. And I could find a lot of connections throughout his journey, like how he thinks and how I think. You know, he's looking at the world and he's experiencing the world and he's commenting on the world. And uh, this is a style and a format, if you will, that derives from 18th century literature Think of Tom Jones, think of uh, Robinson Crusoe. It's a kind of literature which is self-reflective. So you here you have a, a hero, if you will, who is equally self-reflective and looking on the world and not doing too well. Adults keep getting in the way in this book. Wouldn't you say that's true, Sai? Yes, definitely. And they keep getting in Oliver's way of getting to London. Yeah, every time he tries to do something, and actually says this in the book, every time he tries to do something, every time he tries to move forward, he gets thwarted. What did you think of that view of adults? That's probably seems true to him, and it might be true in some cases, because adults always seem to kids like they have a lot more power, um, even though they're just people. So uh, Oliver, the main character, Oliver Cromwell Pitts, this uh, 12-year-old, awakes one morning, as we said, after a storm. There's water in his home in a seaside town called Malcolm Regis. He has no money. He's hungry. Then he hears about a wrecked ship from this storm on the shore near his home, and he goes to explore. Uh, Avi, why don't we have you read some of this? I should explain that on the southern coast of England... Uh, This is the days of sailing vessels and uh, lots of wrecks. And believe it or not, there's a whole library of law about what happens when a ship strikes the shore. Who owns it? Mm. But he gets on this ship. It seems to be abandoned. And whether the question is, he knows that if he steals money from it, it's a hanging offense. 
but he's hungry and he wants money so he can survive. So, despite all these problems, I hoisted myself higher even as I glanced back nervously along the beach east and west. No one was visible. Convinced I was not observed, I swung my legs over the open hatch and inched forward until my feet dangled. Then I moved up even farther until I was sitting on the lip of the hatch, using one hand to hold on to the edge so as to keep from descending too fast. With a sudden snap, the wood I was clinging to broke away. Frantic, I tried to grasp something. It was too late. The weight of my body carried me down so that I plummeted straight into the shadowy hold of the Rose in June. The name of this ship, the Rose in June. What is your sense of how this alters his life, Sive? He thinks that stealing is against the law, and he convinces himself that the money is just to survive. And then um, as he goes on, he discovers that money is like very important when you're trying to travel on your own as a child. And it kind of helps him grow up a little, I think. Um, so d- did you have to do a lot of research for this book? Like, I understand that it was written in the dialect of a 1720s person, and that's not very easy. Yeah, I did do a lot of research, but I've written any number of books about England, about this time. I read a lot of English literature, so a lot of it is quite familiar to me. In terms of language, I did spend a lot of time trying to get the language right, because that's, for me, one of the great fun aspects of writing this kind of book. Can you give us examples of turns of phrase or or words that you ran across? Right at the beginning, uh, when he confronts this storm, he wakes up to a storm, and he says, confounded by such forceful clamors, I was too frightened to shift from my bed. Even so, I listened hard, trying to make sense of what was occurring. Now, that's not probably the way a young person would speak today. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Instagram slang. (laughs) But... There's a kind of slang of its day there. I love language and words, and I make a good deal of effort trying to find the words that are both entertaining and different and illuminating at the same time. There is some shipbuilding terminology, like what's used to make a ship waterproof, and I had to look up that word. What what is that stuff called? Oakum. Oakum, yes. Uh, Speaking of research, Avi, there's a character in the book named Jonathan Wilde, and he's known as the, quote, thief-taker-general of Great Britain and Ireland. He's not introduced in the novel until about halfway through, but you quickly get the impression that this is not a man whose bad side you want to be on. Turns out Mr. Wilde was an actual person and the seed of inspiration for this book. Indeed. And if you're really interested, you can see a skeleton in London. It's on display. But that's neither here nor there, is well, it? Well, you got Sive's attention when you said that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But uh, he was an extraordinarily vicious and evil man. In England at the time, there was no police force. And citizens were called upon to apprehend somebody who was perceived to have committed a crime. And you were therefore a thief taker. But if you had this person convicted, you got a large reward. And Jonathan Wilde made himself a fortune turning people in. And first he would send them out to commit a crime, and then he would take what they stole, and then he would turn them in. And he became 
a kind of mastermind evil genius of England at this time until one of his own thieves turned him in and had him hung. I found it super interesting how you um, weaved the plot together so that Jonathan Wilde at first, from all the different perspectives, he seemed like a good man or a bad man, and you have the reader confused until like the very last part of the story. Wilde is famous for introducing the word double cross into the English language. And if a thief did something under his control that he didn't like, he put one X next to his name in his book. And if he did it a second time, he put a second cross, and that guy or woman was gone. He turned them into the executioner, hence double cross. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Newbery medal-winning children's author, Avi. He lives in Steamboat Springs. His new book is called The Unexpected Life of Oliver Cromwell Pitts. It's a novel, and we read it with Sive Kelleher. She's 12 and a sixth grader at Denver School of the Arts. She's also a winner of the Storymakers Writing Contest from Rocky Mountain PBS, and she is my guest host right now. What's your favorite genre? Like, you seem to write a lot of historical fiction. You know what my favorite answer for that is? Because I'm asked that a lot. I always say my favorite genre is a good book, (laughs) which isn't the genre. But uh, lately I've been doing historical fiction. And uh, the reason is I keep getting older. And my own children have grown up. And what's worse, they've become adults. And what's even worse, they have children of their own. So I am getting further and further away from young people. I haven't seen a young person like you in years. So if I write historical fiction, I can make them up. Oliver appears to struggle, though, a lot with moral dilemmas in this novel. Uh, And he feels like adults push him into a world of crime. And at one point, he even says that adults keep ruining things for him, as we said. Talk about that tension, would you, Avi? Well, young people live in a world of adults. Adults make the rules. Uh, They control most of young people's lives. It's probably necessary in a large degree, but sometimes it's uh, not so great. And in this case, he's surrounded by a bunch of rogues and villains uh, who are determined to do him harm, and he doesn't have the knowledge to know what to do. In any case, many of these people who accost him uh, have power or pistols, and they're determined to make use of him. So he does his best. He makes some wrong decisions, but he tries again and again to cope and uh, to do so as cheerfully as he can and sometimes succeeds, but more often not. Do you think these kinds of things still happen today? Well, yes, (laughs) I do. Um... I just met your mom, and she seems very nice, but I bet she's pretty much in charge of a lot of parts of your life. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. But mostly 99.9% for the good, right? Yeah. Absolutely. We won't talk about that tiny percentage (laughs) that's not. But the point is that Oliver has also been raised as a sort of what we would call an anti-establishment outside the norm as well. He has a very eccentric father. And he's really been raised by his sister, right? Yeah. And so uh, he's really trying to get back under the protection of somebody who was functioning as his mother. That's his sister, Charity. And then, of course, when he discovers her, it's not quite what he thinks he's going to find, is it? 
I gasped out loud. Did you gasp? Oh, good. I'm so glad that people gasp when I write something. That's really terrific. And how did you come up with those plot twists? Like, did you think of them as you were writing, or did you mold the story around them? You know, there's some writers, I know them and admire them. They think out every detail. I have no idea what I'm going to write on the next page. But, but, when you write a story... How many times do you rewrite it before you're done? Many. What's many? Like two or three. Okay. Um, It depends on the length. Sometimes I just edit the original. Sometimes I completely rewrite it. Okay. Well, when I write a book, I rewrite it maybe 80 times. Oh, my goodness. Another gasp. And when I do that, that's part of it is to make you think that I've thought it all out cleverly ahead of time <laughs> so that it grows smoothly. But, uh, you know, I'm working on a new book, and uh, actually it's the sequel to this book, and I've got, Oliver, you'll not be surprised, in another predicament, and I'm thinking, what in the world is he going to do? So when I get through a first draft, I go back to the beginning and try to make it all seem logical. I have a certain quirky belief as a novelist that I can't write a good first line until I write a good last line. That's interesting. How long did it take you to write this book? It takes me about a year, about eight hours a day. Wow. Think about all the time you spend in school. I'd much rather spend that time writing. Um... Sometimes you want to get up and stretch. Do you get antsy when you write, Sive? Um, yeah. Like, I'm fidgeting with this right now. Even as we speak. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I do. And I have to stand up and go pet the dog or jump on the trampoline for a few minutes. And then I come back. Superb writing technique. Yeah, it does help me write better. It does. I take walks or I go for a run or I cook. Well, thanks to both of you. My pleasure. Thank you. Newbery Award-winning children's author Avi. He lives in Steamboat Springs. And earlier this year, we talked about his book, The Unexpected Life of Oliver Cromwell Pitts. My guest co-host was 12-year-old Sive Kelleher, who attends Denver School of the Arts. Avi will be in Denver tomorrow night at the Westward Gallery on Tennyson for the release of his newest book, The Player King. It's about a boy who's plucked from obscurity and becomes the King of England. Uh, Finally today, indigenous musicians from the U.S. and as far away as Taiwan and Scandinavia perform this week in Colorado Springs. One of them is Don Avery, a Grammy nominee and descendant of the Mohawk. This is from a soundtrack Avery wrote to a play. It's about a crane that restores balance to the earth with help from indigenous people. The play is by Heather Henson, daughter of Muppets creator Jim Henson. And the hero of this story, the crane, is a puppet. Oh, 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 oh,
Avery performs at a celebration of indigenous music and culture Wednesday at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you.